Hi, I'm Abhinav. I'm Madhu. Welcome to the Inspiring Idea Podcast. We interview people from across the world and share their life stories and success formulas with our audience. We hope this will inspire you to achieve your dreams. So, let's get the show started. Our guest today is someone who spent four years living and conducting business in Beijing, China. After successfully founding and growing a profitable education company, he has since moved back to San Francisco to invest his experience, connections, and resources back into the startup ecosystem. He is the head of incubation at TechCode Accelerator. He is also the founder of Silicon Valley Successes, a television show, and the Silicon Valley podcast, where he has interviewed some of the biggest names in tech. Is so passionate about building a bridge that connects the Silicon Valley and the rest of the world. Please welcome Sean Flynn. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you going? I'm doing great. Actually, I want to thank you guys for having me as a guest. I'm a I'm a fan of your show, even though I know it's a very new podcast. But everything I've heard so far, I'm really excited. So thank you guys for having me. Welcome, Sean. Sean, in the next 30 minutes, we want to explore your life journey and deep dive into some key moments which contributed to who you are today. I'll start with this, Sean. You really hit the nail by spending time in two of the greatest places that shapes the future of the world, Silicon Valley and China. Where did your entrepreneurship journey start in life? Well, a lot of it, I want to say, is actually luck, to be honest. So, and luck, (laughs) most people probably wouldn't... I mean, if you look at the whole situation, my parents bought a house in Danville, which when they bought it, a train actually went through the the town. They bought a house there because it was the cheapest area to buy a house and they got a huge Mm -hmm. discount because there's only four other houses in the development and they were living in Oakland at that time. But I mean, who would have known, you know, 20 years later that this little area becomes a town where a lot of the people from Silicon Valley live and then they commute into San Jose and that for work. So my neighbors, I mean, pets.com and some of these huge companies that have, you know, failed, uh, they, they all were in an area I used to ride my bike around and, and rollerblade around and skateboard and all that other stuff. And mm-hmm. I actually remembered in high school, a lot of my friends, I graduated high school in 2000. So right, you know, the peak of the dot-com bubble, a lot of my friends and the, the grade above me, especially the grade above me, were contemplating, do I go to college or do I just work in Silicon Valley at my dad's tech company? And actually, I knew a, a few people that decided to work at their parents' tech company. And then, you know, a year later, the company's bust. They're actually selling their house. Um, okay. yeah. You know, horrible things happen. But you're growing up in this environment where everyone is thinking start a company start a company do Mm -hmm. something push yourself you have Mm -hmm. that guy that was a history major that's now a multi multi millionaire in tech and you're like how do those two even work but that was what the ecosystem was like then and it is today it's when you grow up in this environment it pushes you in that that direction Uh, so that's that that's kind of how luck you know would have it there and then china that was another uh, fate thing, I guess, as well. After college, I wanted to travel the world. I had a friend in the Peace Corps in Costa Rica. I moved mm-hmm. to Costa Rica for almost two years, and this was 2005 to 2007. 
when I was there, they have a lot of call centers there that mm -hmm. same time zone as the U.S. And they speak English and Spanish. There's a huge community that, that works in the U.S. So their English level is very high in Costa Rica for a, a big portion of the population. But when I was there, they were teaching some of the, the people Chinese. And the idea was to have call centers there that could speak English, Spanish, and Chinese. So that's half the world's population right there, or more than mm -hmm. half. And when I was doing, living there and doing some research, I thought, oh my gosh, China is just developing. I mean, you look at the, the numbers in 2005, 2006, yeah. and I kept thinking, okay, I don't want to go back to the U.S. and have a real job. Uh, all my friends that graduate college, we were mechanical engineers. I did mechanical engineer undergrad. Some of them liked their jobs. Other of them hated life. And I was having the time of my life in Costa Rica. I was having way too much fun to give any of that up. And I decided, okay, where would the next challenge be? Where would the next big opportunity be? And through my research, I found, okay, let's see if I can do everything I did in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Costa Rica, I was able to support myself. I did you know, some little side projects here and there, but I was able to live. Let's see if I can take all this knowledge and now go to China, learn the language, start a company, do all that stuff there. And I felt to myself, if I could do that in China, I could pretty much conquer any place in the world. And so in 2008, right before the Olympics, I went to China and I thought I was going to be able to do everything in a year or two, but it took almost five years. It Absolutely. was it, it's, it's a challenge. So yeah. it's a new country, but I mean, I can imagine it's a new country. You're going there, starting from scratch. Obviously you knew a few people, but still it's hard work. Yeah. I didn't know anyone in China. Are you kidding? I, I got off the, I got off the plane going, what do I do now? I, I, I signed up for a language university, you know, asked, had the little piece of paper and the characters I printed off, off the internet, handed it to the taxi driver, just pointed. And that was my, that was my intro to China. This is one of the so greatest I, stories we have listened so far, buddy. Absolutely. And I think like when you go there, there's like, it's a completely different uh, in terms of culturally as well. So what are the different challenges that you face there? Like, especially for the first two years that you were there? Oh, the, the list of challenges will just go on and on every day. Even after being there almost five years, I was learning something every day. And oh. actually the company I'm at now, one of the biggest things I was doing before the trade war was helping companies here in Silicon Valley set up operations and offices there in China. And while I'm prepping these companies, I'm telling them and, and everything just keeps changing. So some of the things, and, and this would be a perfect example of just a little thing that could make a big deal. Mm, yeah. In in the U.S., when you write numbers, you write a comma after the third zero. So That's like right. 1,000. Is that the same in, in – I'm guessing the same in India. In China, it's after the fourth zero. Okay. So I would look at these numbers. I'd be like, wait, is that 10,000 or 1,000? <laughs> like what is going on here? And you know, you're negotiating contracts and you're like – okay are they negotiating it like the west or the east what's going on here because that's a factor of 10 and it was always so confusing and just the culture of paying people salaries and counting the money in front versus not um the list can go on and on contracts being worthless pretty much there i i remember when uh, me and my business partner, I was like, we got to get this contract. And she's like, why? I was like, well, so everyone knows what's going on. So everyone will follow it. And she just looked at me. She's like, 
Sean, it's not enforceable at all. You're just wasting everyone's oh. time. <laughs> and I insisted on it. And actually, that contract itself, the, the, our client completely broke it owed us a ton of money and of course it was not enforceable at all and i was like (laughs) (laughs) so lessons like that i mean Mm -hmm. learning how to do business like the local like the local environment how the local culture does it with the Mm -hmm. local rules and being acceptable to that because i mean unless you're adaptable and open-minded and you go into it and if you still hold what you have back from your home country in that new environment, you're going to fail. Absolutely. You have to localize a hundred percent. And with that, China and the U S are different worlds, completely, completely different worlds. I agree, man. So I agree. So coming back to the, another transition that you made, you know, you move from country to country, you know, why did you have to come back to Silicon Valley? Why did you have to go through the pain of another country transition? And what, were the, what did you take from China that you think that Silicon Valley is something that you can do a magic on? Well, the pain of coming back to the U.S., that was actually very difficult. Because to me, I thought I was pretty successful in China. I had a business. I was making money. I was actually you know, more towards the top of income earners and that in the, in the area, if you looked at my salary. Mm-hmm. But then you come back to Silicon Valley. And the currency converts seven to one. You move to San Francisco, one of the most expensive spots in the world. And next thing you know, you're like, I'm broke. (laughs) It's so funny coming back to Silicon Valley from, you know, this one area to the other. But, you know, I came back here. I was in a good situation. um, and, And, I mean, I just wanted to see how I could take all those, that knowledge and resources I had there and, utilize it here in my home country. The one thing that I really wanted was if you're doing something in another country based on their laws and regulations, it might not be yours. Mm. And that was kind of my situation where at, you know, any time it could just be taken like that. So I was frustrated at that point. I thought, okay, I want to go back to the U S because whatever I build will be mine. I'm confident it will be mine. I'll get to hold on to it. Uh, so when I came back here, you know, I still had that drive, but at the same time, I was kind of exhausted. But I also had some family things I had to take care of as well. Mm. Um, and it was also really difficult. I guess the most difficult part of the transition back was since so few people here had experienced what I had, they mm. didn't really fully appreciate or comprehend the resources i was bringing that's true they just hear oh you lived overseas for like seven eight years costa rica china europe china you know what's your experience Mm. whoa i started a couple companies i did this Mm. i did that Mm. Uh, so it was difficult but at the same time by learning to adapt through all those years of moving into new cultures i i was able to acclimate myself pretty quickly here mm. i and think then, it, it boils down to the, the self-confidence that you had uh, after uh, such uh, rejections initially when you came back to silicon valley you never lost that disinterest that's what you're saying i would say i'm used to getting nose used to getting uh, shut down and keep going so yeah. yeah i mean you have to have some some grit when you're doing this stuff in other countries and then when you're back in your home more comfortable environment if you keep that grit with you 
you can do a lot. Mm. Yeah, I think I think me and Madhu can relate to it because I think we migrated to Australia about seven, eight years back without jobs. And <laughs> as you said, the first thing is that when once you come in here, you start converting everything before you're buying stuff. Uh, <laughs> and you're wondering, okay, how much is going to cost me here? Yeah, that's so true. And your current role, um, Sean, is, is the role of a head of incubation. Right, so listening to your intuition, learning from your experience working in Costa Rica and China, and then coming back to Silicon Valley, there are certain hard routes that you have taken in the entrepreneurship journey. So, if I want to ask you to unpack some of these mindsets and the key decisions that you have made in your transformational journey, uh, what would those one or two decisions that you would recall as the best ones that the audience can take? Oh, while, when you're young, try as many things as possible. That was, I mean, I wish I actually would try more. Now I'm married. I'm kind of settling down a little bit. I, I can't responsibly take the same risk as I could before. When mm -hmm. I, Then I could just say, I'm done with this country. On to the next one. I mean, yeah. there you, <laughs> you can literally risk everything. And the worst thing that happens is maybe you have to move back home with your parents for a little bit or you know, sleep on a friend's couch for some time. So try just, just don't have regrets when you're, when you don't have the responsibilities. That's when, that's when you can really strive because some of those will pay off and you'll get so much further along than you would have if you went the, the more traditional route. Mm. Awesome. Uh, let's talk about the last two decades, which has profoundly changed the way human beings live and operate. Uh, we've seen so many successful companies starting from Silicon Valley and making it big. We've got so many examples, Netflix, Zoom, Uber, etc. Uh, let's talk about what went right for them. I mean, a lot of it was, I can't say a lot of it, but yes, the right place. They're in an environment where they had access to capital. They had access to mentors, advisors that could help them scale, that have had exits before. They're we're in an area where yes there were regulations but it's it's very common to fight regulations mm -hmm. and people will support you and with lawyers help you can get through a lot of things they were in an area where innovation is championed mm -hmm. i mean i i can even say a story there's an investment banker i know that sat across the table from travis as he was pitching the idea for Uber and told the guy, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> there you go. No one is uh, going to get in a stranger's car that they yeah. don't know. Mm. You're, this is crazy. But of course, you know, Travis goes to the next investment banker, the next investor gets a check. And that's kind of the beauty here. You know, one investment banker is having dinner with me. The other is, you know, in a mansion on top of the hill. <laughs> that's true. That's but, true. but it's just having that, those opportunities to go to the next person, having that grit to keep going, having the founders that have the resources to keep moving and have that mindset where, okay, I'm always coachable. I will adapt to whatever is brought in front of me and I will learn from it. I will seek out those who have more knowledge, take that knowledge and implement it into what I'm doing. And you'll just hear the stories of these founders that are literal sponges. They will mm -hmm. just take information from this advisor, this senior lawyer, this accountant who's worked with 
another company that went IPO and took the best knowledge from them and and they're good with people too. That's that's one thing I would definitely say the so uh I'm going to give a shameless plug <clears throat> my podcast the Silicon Valley podcast I've gotten to interview some of the biggest names Melanie Perkins founder of Canva Jim McKelvey co-founder of Square the moment you talk to these people you feel like you know them and mm. you want to help them. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing the people skill that some of these founders have literally because I've met people in the past where I'll meet them for a second and I go, I hope that guy fails. And then I'll go, wait, Sean, don't think evil thoughts in other people, you know, <laughs> everyone should succeed. But then you meet these guys and you're like, you're a great person. I want to help you. Who do I know that can help you? I want to go out of my way to help you, even if I get nothing in return. And that's a skill quality. I would say that these founders of a lot of these companies also have, you know, that those champions on the sidelines saying, I want you to get to the next level. Maybe I can write a check. Maybe I can't, but maybe I know someone that can help you. Let's just talk because you, we have some rapport going. So there's a, there's a lot of qualities. And I think that's also why you, we hear so about so few of these companies growing champions because really people that have these skills to especially grow and develop over time because each company, I mean, when you have 10 people, when you have 30, when you have 50, when you have 100, mm -hmm. the company is a different company at each stage. It really is. The way you manage them from I'm involved in every task to I'm delegating to every task to I don't know what 90% of the things actually are that's going on. Each of those is a different mindset among the, the leader, the champion of the company, and few people can adapt in such a short amount of time to that because these companies are scaling quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. You're doubling headcount possibly you know, every, every other month or every couple months, and as, you have to adapt with that. So, I mean, I could keep going on and on for some of the things I've noticed, but I mean, a lot of it is, are those things being good with people? being good with yourself, knowing what your strong suits are. I mean, mm -hmm. the worst thing is having that CTO think he's a CEO or that CEO, you know, thinks he's a CTO. It doesn't match. <laughs> it doesn't I mean, match. What you're, what you're strong at, that's what you got to be the champion of. I and agree. you got to lead the company in that. And maybe, I mean, there's one company that I saw their seed round. I followed them a little bit. The, the marketer, Yes, he started off as one of the co-founders, but after they got to, you know, 30-something employees, he stepped down. He purposely said, hey, you know, I just, I don't like managing people. I like working on certain tasks. That's what my strong suit is. I'm very good at my projects, but I can't manage people. And he knew that, so that helped the company. If he had blocked it, if he had yeah. fought, who knows? Maybe that tears the company apart. No idea, but... I think we it's about, about self-realization. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, huh. we love we loved what you're talking about. So it's about the self-realization of what you are good at and what you can actually implement and bring it to the table. So we call it as ikigai. It's a Japanese word for that, right? So what you're good at and what you, are, uh, what you can be paid for is something that you can uh, get into. It. Absolutely awesome to listen to some of those uh, key tells and some of the characteristics uh, to be successful. Um, thank you for that, Sean. I just wanted to move on to the next one about the current situation that we are all living in. Everyone talks about COVID-19. And as a founder, as an investor, um, you know, someone who's helping many investors as well, do you see any 
apprehensions in investments for startups right now and broadly speaking you talk about customer delivery you talk about online learning so these are some of the immediate areas that comes to my mind where innovation is at its peak on the other side there are investments that are still going on with ai and robotics and some of the disruptive technologies which you are passionate about so if i am a founder if i am an investor if you know if i'm thinking about investing where would i put my x well i'm not giving any investment recommendations on anything but i could talk to you about kind of what i'm seeing here right now mm-hmm. and Yes, people are very unsure of what's going to happen in the future, especially angel investors and that that have a certain amount of their portfolio allocated to investment in certain stage companies. And they don't know if that part is going to expand, contract. They don't really know what's going on. So a lot of them are hesitant. Also, a lot of the ways that they were meeting companies before pitch events, their their angel group meetings. Yes, some of them have gone virtual now, but some of them have been on pause for quite a bit. So that interaction there, it's a little bit less. Luckily though, with online platforms such as what we're using Zoom and that, people are now starting to get even more meetings than before. They're, they're more open to connect. They can do more in a single day. Mm-hmm. I mean, VC funds, the ones I've talked to, kind of the same situation, they're hesitant, but at the same time, they have a mandate to deploy capital in a certain amount of time. I mean, their thesis says, okay, we have to invest in a certain number of companies over a certain span, and then those companies grow, then we start harvesting the money. So they know themselves, okay, at first, maybe the first two, three months, we could kind of hold back and see what's going on. But at the same time, now we really have to start investing and actually have to catch up even a little bit because we were planning on investing in one or two companies a month, and we haven't done anything for three months. So now we have to catch up. But And then we also have the groups out there going, okay, I'm going to raise a, a venture fund or that, and really analyzing where they think the future is going to be. Mm. A lot of the events and uh, people I've talked to are now starting to shift more towards telemedicine, uh, mm. med tech devices. Uh, I mean, and then also like FinTech and that, because they so much money being transferred, payments, all these banks are on these legacy systems that are 30, 40 years old, some people are saying. They even say that, you know, some of these things are written on code they don't even have coders for anymore. It's, That's right. It's, That's right, yeah. So, and, and that actually is a lot of opportunity because a lot of these companies that had spent, you know, or were thinking of adopting this technology over the next three or five years are now forced to adopt it over the next three or five months. So there, there's a lot of opportunity amongst all this chaos. Um, and it definitely, you know, you mentioned it before, there's definitely different sectors that are benefiting from it. That's good. That's fantastic. Uh, let's talk about the future. Uh, where is Silicon Valley headed, say in a decade or two? Where would be the hotspots? And who do you think would be the next Uber, Square, Amazon? Oh, well, if, if you're talking a decade from now, I mean, the next Uber Square won't be won't be built for another five years. It won't be someone's mind or in someone's mind. I think there's going to be a huge disruption in fintech mm-hmm. uh, with with banking. I I'm not sure, but I think I could see governments going to digital currency. If that happens globally, 
so many things are going to change politically. Uh, I mean, the list can go on and on. Um, blockchain technology for logistics. I mean, we're seeing right now a lot of the countries nationalize or, or try to bring manufacturing back locally. Well, with that, that's disrupting the supply chain. So then we have to go, okay, we got blockchain technology, we got all these IoT devices monitoring, we have everything going to blockchain, the cloud and cloud storage. How, how is this all going to change? And I mean, also right now, even with harvesting crops and planting or well, ag tech, because we're not going to see the same people in the fields as they were before and the technology, the manufacturing equipment has to be adjusted and changed. So at, at this stage, I mean, everything's up for grabs for, you know, things. I mean, God, I had, I had a conversation the other day with this person who this company is developing this machine that can literally harvest a hundred acres of crops in a less than a day. And the crops they're focused mm -hmm. on is one that before no one could, you know, harvest by machine. And you're just listening to this going, you know, you may be crazy, but <laughs> if you're not, and this works, that's a game changer. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so we're going to see a lot of that in the coming years for sure with AI completely changing the way that we uh, operate as humans. So I know from, from your uh, perspective, you run a podcast and you love technology. Your main mission is to provide coaching, content reference, handy tools, and creating a cohesive community for anyone who wants to jump onto the startup journey. So do you want to very quickly talk to us about uh, what you do and how do you think that people can reach out to you to get benefited? Yes. So thank you for asking. So I have a podcast, the Silicon Valley podcast. I've interviewed some of the biggest names. I mentioned Jim McKelvey. I've mentioned Melly Perkins, Patrick Lee, founder of Ron Tomato. I've interviewed Connor Riley, a managing partner at Investment Bank here, Bill Reckner, who's managing partner at Grod Ventures, uh, Steve Hoffman. The list goes on and on with these experts here, which are no names in the Valley that have helped this community out so much. And one of the things that really frustrated me is I work with companies all over the world and they would ask me similar questions. You know, how do I create a pitch deck for Silicon Valley raise capital? How do I register a company? You know, what, how much equity should I give up each round? Things like that. I, I was so frustrated because I could have these conversations every day, but these companies from Korea, Germany, uh, China that I was talking to, they needed an introduction and they needed someone to facilitate it. So I thought, okay, let's do a TV show. That TV show caught on. It was in 28 cities, but it was all U.S. still. And I went, okay, I got to do something global. So uh, last September, I started a podcast. April 30th of this last year, I rebranded it, relaunched it as the Silicon Valley Podcast. And right now, my goal is to get the information from all these experts here in Silicon Valley and pass it along to people in the world that could benefit. I wanted, I'd like to get it in every startup ecosystem, every startup, little hub, incubator, accelerator that in the world. I'd love that person in, in India to go, oh my God, I just listened to this interview with Brett Sharonow, who helped raise over 7 billion in exits, 750 million in capital, talk about financial modeling. And I can use his advice, which would normally cost, you know, a thousand an hour for his time on my startup. And I listen to this guy's podcast like that. That's my dream. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish with all Beautiful, this man. is to help people that can't access this knowledge, access it. 
That's a fantastic dream. Yeah. I can definitely see there's a lot of uh, gap in terms of reaching out. That's you're doing a wonderful job, buddy. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a real pleasure having you. Thank Thanks, you. Sean. Oh, thank you guys. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, if there's anything I can do for you and your listeners, please let me know. Sure. Hi, I'm Abhinav. I'm Madhu. Welcome to the Inspiring Idea Podcast. We interview people from across the world and share their life stories and success formulas with our audience. We hope this will inspire you to achieve your dreams. So, let's get the show started.